0: Reddit had a horrible problem before I came back. A Bunch of celebrity phones were hacked. Revenge porn was posted there. The decision was made by the CEO then to keep them up. And so the first policy that I posted after coming back as chairman, policy update, was uh, banning non-consensual nudes. And I think the approach that we used that worked was framing it as a privacy issue, but it's something that most people agree is is pretty obviously the right thing to do, and yet it wasn't even worthy of the, hey, we did this thing because we really should have done it sooner. This This was a known problem, and this was a chance to be a leader instead of reactive.
1: When Reddit launched in 2005, content policy as a field was at best nascent and at worst non-existent. Internet communities were in their infancy. Just nine years before the founding of Reddit in February of 1996, the 104th Congress of the United States enacted Section 230 of the CDA, the Communications Decency Act. If you Google the text of this act and read it, which I highly recommend you do, It will sound really old, because it is really old. It's been over 25 years since Section 230 went into effect, which in internet years is officially a long-ass time. Section 230 said, quote, It is the policy of the United States to preserve the vibrant and competitive free market that presently exists for the internet and other interactive computer services, unfettered by federal or state regulation. This general laissez-faire policy essentially gave platforms the ability to allow or not allow whatever they wanted. Very few people in the world experienced firsthand what it was like inside a technology company providing platforms for community and discussion in this pre-content policy budding phase of the internet. Alexis Ohanian, co-founder of Reddit, is one of them. I remember working with a content policy expert to build Patreon's first version of our content policy in 2014, and even then, it felt like the wild, wild west. So I was keen to ask Alexis what he thinks he got right and what he thinks he got wrong in that weird period. For 10
0: years of my life, Reddit defined my identity. My, I was the Reddit guy, right? For better or for worse, I lived my life knowing that everything I did was a reflection of Reddit. Every comment I made on the internet was potential fodder for God knows what uh, online. And so figuring out how to reconcile that was a challenge.
1: When he returned to Reddit in 2014 after selling the company for $10 million to Condé Nast in 2006, Alexis knew that updating Reddit's content policy was going to be a critical first step in the company's turnaround. And now in 2021, Reddit, sometimes called the town square of the internet, was reportedly valued at $10 billion. And while most people will always know Alexis as the Reddit co-founder, He's more than moved on, launching two VC firms, including Initialized with Gary Tan, and most recently with his new firm, 776. In 2015, he married the world's number one female tennis player, Serena Williams. And in 2017, they had a daughter, Alexis Olympia Ohanian Jr. Alexis has said that his current venture, 776, will be his last. He also called it an ethical VC fund. I wanted to dig in with Alexis on content policy, VC, and the future of the creator Economy. You TikTokers with your dancing, and God bless you, <laughs> and I'm glad you're making a career out of it, but you have no idea what the OGs went through having to pave the way because
0: no one took this seriously.
1: I'm Jack Conti, CEO and co-founder of Patreon, and this is the Creator Economy Podcast with Alexis Ohanian. So what is the thesis of the fund? What is it that you're trying to accomplish? So I've always been pretty sector agnostic. I think the only way to
0: be an early investor in Patreon and Instacart and Coinbase and Cruise, an automated uh, car company, in such a range of industries is leaning into a strong founder network and, and making yourself really open to being taught new things and sort of being default curious and insatiable when it comes to... Basically, what smart people are thinking about, talking about, and building and doing. and I know how to design product, but with, with 7.76, I know, I know how to build software. We, we've built software to not just run our firm asynchronously, everything from the notes we take, the intros we make, uh, even the communications we have with our investors and our founders, um, but tools for our founders to use to search our network instead of having to ask us, hey, do you know so-and-so? I just want I want the next Jack to be able to just run the search and be like, oh, you do know this celebrity. Like, I'd love an intro, one-click intro, boom. Bring, bring software in to simplify a lot of things and then hopefully start to surface a lot more in the network that we aren't even aware of existing. And, and that really was a North Star because... You know, last year was uh, an intense year for everybody, and it was a time for me to think about where I wanted to be putting my time, what I wanted to be associating with, and you know, I've got now a four-year-old, and it it just crystallized for me. I have a whole career ahead of me that she is actually going to experience and live in real time. And she's not going to know me for anything I've done before this. She will read about it, and I'm going to have to have some, some hard conversations with her about, about some of those things. But that was where I needed to get right with myself and with that future conversation with her. That's why I resigned uh, you know, pretty publicly from the board of Reddit. I've been happy to see them making great changes as a result, like banning 3,000 hate communities after I left. And I knew that whatever I did going forward couldn't just be like 80% aligned with my vision – it had to be 100%. And I felt like on some level, I'd earned that from what I've accomplished, but also that I need to make sure that Olympia hears awesome stories about her dad just as much as she does about her mom. And I know, I know what I'm good at. <laughs> I know how I want to do it. And I, I see opportunities to do it better. And I want to be incredibly successful doing it on subtly different terms.
1: What motivates you to invest in a new company? What what sorts of things you get really excited about that you find yourself wanting to invest in
0: i really lean in when i meet a founder who deeply understands uh, a market or the customer or or something and can teach me something new and so that means we end up investing in in all kinds of companies like i see these moments with founders that I, I feel so fortunate to get to see because <laughs> I know that 99.9% of people they would be talking to at the moment they're talking to me would react just like all those other investors did when you were pitching Patreon because it's so far ahead. It's just inconceivable this could be a thing and those are such precious times in a company's life. Like that first year, it's I don't want to go too much into the like it's like a kid, but it kind of is. And what could go wrong is an infinite list. And the likelihood that this thing is gonna grow up to be a a multi-billion dollar business that affects all these people is so, so, so slim. But if you can consistently attract the types of founders that can build this and then consistently help them in ways that few others can, you get to watch this miracle happen again, after again, after again. And and this is part of the reason why a big responsibility we have with 776 is to bring even more people into venture, because I really think this is one of the highest leverage ways to just build better things in the world. And even though venture capital has funded a lot of amazing things, 40 percent, This is a real stat. Of all VCs, went to Harvard or Stanford. (laughs) Now, that's what's impressive there is actually that we've had so many amazing things get funded in spite of the fact (laughs) that half the people writing the checks went to basically one of two pretty homogenous schools. (laughs) But that gives me hope. Because if all the amazing stuff has been funded in spite of such a limited worldview of, of folks. Think of what happens as more and more people are able to invest. And so that's a big part of what we want to build. And and we did open applications, which is a rare thing in venture, but it seems obvious. Like, why wouldn't you want to hire outside of your friend group or your college pals? We did open recs for our operating partners. Got 1,200 applicants. The three that we selected all have a decade-plus of experience at top startups, like hitters, All of them. I mean, we get so many great applicants. 81% of the applicants self-identified as underrepresented in venture, which really just means you're not a white dude. But it goes to show there is a ton of talent that... Is, is not just ready and interested to break into the industry, but also has the exact skills that founders want. A founder is thrilled to talk to someone who's got 10 years doing product work at Uber or a decade of policy and BD work with uh, Airbus or Google. And like that's, I think, a gateway in for a lot of talent that I hope becomes this sort of next generation of venture. Because, dude, it's, it's either going to be Dow's or or much more sophisticated venture firms that are going to do all the capital allocating in the future. So I hope we're in the latter group.
1: So are you excited about DAOs?
0: I say this as a VC who is potentially threatened by DAOs, uh, but no. Well, okay. I I think similar NFTs, the vast majority, not going to go anywhere. As an underlying technology, very interesting and so a small percentage are going to be very formidable and very effective I mean I'm in I'm in Flamingo Dow like I watch this collective in the group chat talking about and, and calling votes to make big investments in different nft art projects or different things and I'm just like holy shit this is working and and again we're we're in we're still in the early days. There's a lot of cash grabs. There's a lot of charlatans. But but like the underlying tech is real. It seems to be working. And do I think a collective of people voting can do as good or better of a job than a whole heck of a lot of people individually? Yeah, for sure.
1: So what do you think is the integration of crypto and and communities and mm. blockchain and communities yeah. and how do you see communities uh, i guess evolving in web3 how, how is that different especially with regard to reddit to
0: 2005 there were a lot of people very skeptical that reddit would work because the idea in 05 of random strangers with pseudonyms, with usernames coming together on the Internet, building community, sharing links, having discussions with total strangers, doing all that work, um, was, was pretty hard to believe. Even for people who had grown up on the Internet, familiar with Usenet and message boards, they just didn't think that it could ever go mainstream. And it's kind of a miracle it worked because the incentive structures that we built, I mean, I designed basic point systems you know, awards, things that I've learned from video games to, like, give people incentive to come back. Leaderboards to post showing their karma scores if people liked what they posted, daily awards if they made an interesting comment or what have you, but, like, that was it. And then community was the reason people keep coming back, and it worked. But now, with this Web3 infrastructure, all those same mechanics still exist. Everyone's bought in. Everyone knows that it's viable because there's hundreds of millions of people using online communities every day. And there's a financial upside. And that that pays the bills. And if Patreons taught me anything, if you can build the infrastructure that helps people pay the bills for what they do, you become such a key part of their lives.
1: What does it take? It, it, it's, there's a reason nobody churns out. Is it the financial infrastructure that you think is the the kind of the third leg of the stool on on web3 that makes it click or wh- what are the other like core elements that you think are exciting about it i
0: i hate to keep going back to something as base as the financial part but i think the reason there is so much energy right now is because and you're seeing it's the same energy that lives in wall street bets it's the same energy that's lived in Zuccotti Park. Uh, it's this feeling of disenfranchisement by a whole lot of people left out of a system that seems to be not really working for them. And in a way, I said the same thing when Wall Street Bets was popping off, and I said, "Look, this is not new, and this is not going away. This is a new normal now that you have an empowered global community able to coordinate and talk and share ideas and collaborate and all this stuff." And and I think that is a part of it. And and you know, you you had how many people did you introduce yourself to for all those years when you said you were a musician that that apologized to you or hoped you wished you the best, right? Endless. All right, oh, a starving artist was a meme, and and I think getting that part right is it's it's the reason why there's so much velocity here, but I think it's also a really important part of the puzzle.
1: I'm a bit biased, of course, but I deeply agree with what Alexis is saying about the importance of financial infrastructure. The way I see it, we're about to experience a renaissance of arts and creativity that's being driven by three trends. First, creation tools are cheap and ubiquitous. Drones, 360 cameras, USB microphones, Figma, After Effects, laptops. These tools are everywhere and cheaper than they've ever been in human history. Making a record used to require a quarter million dollar budget, a record label, an expensive production studio, dozens of people, and hundreds of thousands of dollars of hardware. Now we're in a world where Grimes can make a record on GarageBand in her apartment and get slot number 98 on the Billboard Top 200. Low-cost, ubiquitous creation tools make artistry accessible. The second trend is distribution. Over the last 20 years, Humans have been connected to a degree that we've never experienced in history. Social media has proved to have plenty of shit downsides. But the upside of human connectivity is impossible to deny. Hundreds of millions of creators who now have access to cheap creation tools are able to distribute their work and build real communities around their creativity. The last remaining puzzle piece is the business model. The infrastructure to help these creative people build their businesses and become full-time artists. When that monetization architecture reaches scale, we will experience a second renaissance with a spirit and energy that makes the first renaissance look like a kid's crayon drawing on a fridge. So what does it mean for creators then? What does web3 and NFTs mm. and crypto, what does it mean for this next generation of creators? We're seeing a, a lot of big folks adopt NFTs at a at a blitzing pace. Yeah. What is it going to be like to be an artist 5 years from now, 10 years from now? How will these new technologies mm. benefit creators?
0: So, so one thing to be clear, it's going to be there's there's still going to be volatility. This is, you know, I still believe in business cycles. There's there's a lot of projects that are just cash grabs that are not going to be enduring. Like, do your research. This is not financial advice, et cetera, et cetera. But I do think this, the core technology, for all intents and purposes, seems to be here to stay. And you just saw Stripe. The fact that Stripe announced that they're integrating crypto is a huge deal because culturally, I mean, they're a massive, wonderful, successful, great startup. But philosophically, the fact that these, like, classic fiat rails are now going to get Web3 crypto treatment is is powerful, and it obviously unlocks it for millions and millions of users, too. So this will keep moving forward. And I would say creators of the next five years, 10 years, are going to invent and really engineer new ways through, I think, a lot of Remix culture, through a lot of very collaborative, unique type of work. create all kinds of stuff we can't even imagine. So uh,
1: what do you mean by like Remix culture? Give me an example. Like, like- Dom
0: launches a few different projects, one of which was Loot, uh, which was just an NFT of a limited run of, it's like white text on a black image. There's not much artistic quality to it, but it's some interesting item names. As If, if you've played Diablo or any of these role-playing games, they'll be pretty familiar to you. But that's it. But by doing this and catalyzing and exciting a community around it, You've now seen more people build layers on top of this. So now you have uh, loot. You also have uh, projects that have created avatars for loot based on the items that are equipped. So you can actually see and visualize this list of text now with artwork. This will seem like a really basic tool uh, in 10 years to creators. But there is going to be an undercurrent here of community that is so strong, because I've seen what it does without the financial incentive, and I I know what it's capable of, and now that this hooks in, it will will change things drastically. And what's exciting is, I would never bet against the sort of creative power of a community, all aligned, versus even the best-funded, traditional, sort of top-down creator. There is no amount of creativity that one person alone can have versus a collective.
1: In November of 2007, Greenpeace launched a contest to raise awareness about an annual whale hunt performed by the Japanese Fisheries Agency. The organization identified a whale that they were gonna add a tag to and track with satellites. To humanize the effort, they opened up an online poll to name the whale. There were 30 options for names, and one of them, intended as a joke, was Mr. Splashy Pants. And then on Monday, November 26, 2007, a user with an IP address in Arizona figured out that by disabling cookies, they could bypass the one vote per user rule. And they began voting at a rate of 120 votes per minute for 38 straight minutes. The surge in votes for Mr. Splashy Pants got the attention of 4chan, Boing Boing, and Reddit. Greenpeace, tried to remove the extra votes, but communities were flocking in droves to the Greenpeace website at that point to vote for Mr. Splashy Pants. The name surged in popularity from 5% of the votes to 75% of the votes in less than a day. So in an effort to combat the surge, Greenpeace kept the vote open for another week to see if they could garner more support for a different name. And that's when Alexis decided to temporarily change Reddit's logo to a cartoony, Reddit-ish whale, and people went bananas. Greenpeace had no hope. And on Monday, December 10th, 2007, Mr. Splashy Pants was announced as the winning name of the competition. Soon after that, despite their initial hesitation over the ridiculousness of the name, Greenpeace had so much awareness and resulting leverage from the campaign that they were able to convince the Japanese government to abandon the hunt for humpback whales. Less than a month after the contest ended. If anyone knows anything about the power of community, it's Alexis Ohanian. Let's pivot to community and content policy, and yeah. in particular, I mean, this was something we had early conversations about yeah. content policy. Yeah. I guess, how are you thinking about content policy these days? What do you think went wrong, and what do you think we need to do about it?
0: I have to frame this in uh, a way, which is Web 2 was built by a lot of dudes like just like you and me. Uh, who who, in some way or another grew up on the internet, always in a pretty safe environment. I mean, I never once felt attacked in my life growing up on the internet. The internet always just seemed like a really magical, cool, great place where I learned how to program from strangers, or I had a Quake II clan or an EverQuest guild, and it was just all sunshine and rainbows, and even, even the like sort of weird <laughs> internet-y things didn't ever feel that existential or that threatening at all. And it is very clear that because all of us had this experience in creating these platforms, it was very easy to have a laissez-faire type approach to content. And I'm proud of some of the things that I know we got right, Um, and I wish I had certainly pushed harder or at least really just been more effective at at the things that uh, we didn't. And I think the challenge is deciding where to lead, and I think what everyone is tired of, including myself, is when the, the default course is to be reactive. It is not to make hard decisions that are important and the, sort of the right ones. But when it looks like all the time it only comes as a reaction to scrutiny or outcry from the users or a boycott or whatever, that starts to look a lot less like leadership And a lot more like shirking the responsibility and just basically getting shamed into doing something about it.
1: What were some of the things you think that Reddit got wrong in the early days with regard to content policy? Um,
0: You know, the first policy, and you could see the announcement, it's still on Reddit. The first policy that I posted after coming back as chairman, policy update, was uh, banning non-consensual nudes. And that was revenge porn. And you can look at the comments to this day. It's actually incredibly positive. And I think the approach that we used that worked was framing it as a privacy issue. And by saying, look, you know, Reddit had a horrible problem before I came back. A bunch of celebrity phones were hacked. The revenge porn was posted there. The decision was made by the CEO then to keep them up. And, you know, that was a disastrous decision. And so that was something where it wasn't even on my radar starting Reddit. It wasn't even, I mean, I don't even think the concept really existed in 2005, even the proliferation of smartphones started happening. It just wasn't there. But it's something that most people agree is is pretty obviously the right thing to do. And yet it, it wasn't even worthy of the, the like, hey, we we did this thing because we really should have done it sooner. We should have this this was a known problem and and this was a chance to be a leader instead of reactive.
1: And and how do you think content policy is going to evolve over the next
0: decade? So here's one, all right? Now, I, for years, talked about, very publicly, dealt with all those questions around it, and I really do think everyone is trying to do their best. I don't think there's ill intent here. But the time has clearly come for, for leaders to lead, and the thing that's most important, I get so frustrated when I hear the city analogy, because if, if a CEO is telling you their social media startup is a city, and that's how they justify the toxic elements, because we all sort of accept the fact that in a city, we have a large enough group of people that there's are sometimes going to be people we don't agree with, and they're bad actors. And this is generally the analogy that's used to maintain this laissez-faire approach. There are lots of reasons it's bullshit, but one of the biggest is that if you're the CEO of a city and you're not democratically elected, then really what you are is the dictator of a city. And so if you want to use the city analogy, (laughs) then you have to either be honest and say, okay, well, it's a city, but it's a dictatorship and you're never removing me, or Say, All right, we're going to do something a little different here. I'm a CEO, but I'm democratically elected by all the people who live here. You can't have it both ways. I, I look at these social media sites as, well, what they are. They're private businesses. Um, you know, the, the best analogy I've got is like infinite convention center. Javits is a really depressing one, but I'm a New Yorker, so I'm going to stick to Javits center. So, right, uh, you know, These are private spaces. And the Javits Center of the internet allows tens of thousands of communities to come together. And if you're into Pokemon, that's dope. You're into stapling bread to trees, that's awesome. Go have a community, go talk about that. But when the Javits Center says, you can bring your community here, it is giving them space. And it's telling, hey, uh, Pokemon folks, you gotta move your booth over because we're bringing in the, the stapling bread to trees folks. And it's like, cool, yeah, awesome. yeah, Great, good luck with your bread. But you're making a decision just by who you're hosting in the venue because you're implicitly and explicitly saying you're okay to be here. And when you look at it through that lens, it becomes a lot harder to justify deeply antisocial communities that are either violent or racist or et cetera. Because you have to look at it through that lens and, and, again, make the hard decision about, like, is this something that we are about here there's a reason why the Javits Center doesn't say, hey, Friday night, it's all right night. Come on by. <laughs> There's a reason why. And, and I think if we're going to use metaphors, we just have to be honest with the metaphors we use.
1: So how is it going to change? How are humans going to work their way through this over the next decade?
0: So I do believe in the market ultimately settling
1: this. I think— Does that mean you're— Anti-regulation for tech when oh, it comes to content policy. No,
0: I think, okay, I think, I think the market will be more effective than regulation. I'm not anti-regulation. I am generally very, very skeptical of people who unfortunately don't really understand the technology they're regulating Regulating it. Very, very skeptical. The unintended consequences of everything else. I do think the free market will work much faster and more effectively. And what I feel most strongly about is that we have a new generation of CEOs now except they've grown up on the internet. They have grown up in the shadow of the platforms we've created, good and bad. And so those CEOs are way more sophisticated than I was, just inherently, because they understand the internet in a way that I don't, that we don't. And so they are also so much more thoughtful and so much more confident saying, fuck that, we don't want this here. And and they know from a business decision, from a – platform engagement decision from a societal decision, what they want. And I actually think that sort of new wave of innovation is going to come very fast, especially when it's aligned with dollars, especially when it means the creators are not being harvested and their fans are not being harvested by platforms for ads and everything else, but they're actually being supported directly by them. I think things shift fast. And and it's exciting to me because, look, I'm comfortable with the internet being a place that is open. And I also know that businesses and ultimately CEOs have to make hard decisions that are best for their businesses. They don't have to care about anything else. It's a business decision. And these are private companies. I, I really think what we'll see in the next five years is content policies that have confidence and that are like leading instead of reacting, and businesses that are run that way, are going to thrive. And because it means more engagement. It's going to mean more revenue. It's going to mean more affinity. And, and yes, there are toxic elements that are always going to exist in society. They are always going to exist on the internet. But businesses have the right to make these decisions and should make those decisions. Um, now, the Facebook one is a trickier one because we're talking about a scale between Facebook, Instagram, and WhatsApp that is so massive that I think... If we want to talk about antitrust, I think that's a different regulatory consideration um, than when it comes to this whole misinformation topic. Because the other irony here is so much of the misinformation is is ultimately consumed by a generation that is not digitally native, right? It's, it's our parents, it's our parents' parents that are consuming this. And I don't know what that media literacy project looks like to fix that, but I, I'm not terribly optimistic about it.
1: Switching topics yes. to the creator economy. We're covering a lot here. What, what are the what are the creator besides Patreon? Yes. What are kind of the exciting developments, companies, products, use cases that you're seeing in mm. the creator economy right now? What's burgeoning? What's the perspective that you're getting as an investor, seeing just you know tons and tons of of these super early stage seed, pre seed yeah. companies? What's being built right now for creators that you're really excited about?
0: So, a lot of it's unsexy infrastructure software, um, companies, so stir which I'm not an investor in, I think you are, great company, like unsexy infrastructure running the back office for these creators, um, Pop company I am invested in, um, basically the marketplace for brand deals for anyone with an audience. Like, I, I love my agency at UTA, shout out UTA, y'all are great. I've told you this straight up though. The traditional agency model cannot support the breadth and diversity of internet creators there's no way you could have agents in an office doing all those deals, nor should you 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 want a marketplace for that and that's what pairpo's built and, and it's done well but you need something to butter the bread every day and patreon reinvented the thing the Medici showed was possible for i mean was was the way to create so much of the art of the renaissance like michelangelo is not getting his uh cell phone bill paid unless the medicis are letting him what paint on his back for four years michelangelo
1: now that's a great content creator right Right? i mean great content creator yeah excellent what are your hopes and dreams for the future of the creator economy
0: Ooh man all right you want to know the biggest one
1: yeah what's the biggest one
0: i and this is why i invested in patreon I want to live in a world where a kid can have a singular ambition in life, which is just to create, and have a clear path for how she can do that for a living, making a great life for herself and for her family, where every morning, all she does is wake up and think about what they want to create that day, and create it. Uh, that is a world I want to live in. I think. I I am convinced that we're going to continue to automate, we're going to continue to scale all types of other work, and we are going to need people as a a society. Forget the value of art, and there's a ton of value in art, but let's put that aside for a second. We are going to need people to feel fulfilled every day. We need to have paths for people to if it is their passion, create and make a living from it, not just because it will produce the next generation of inspiration and in art and culture, which is very important, but also because it will hold the fabric of society together. I, I know that that's easy to sound hyperbolic, but I, I really strongly believe in the next ten years, it is imperative that we create new career paths that are with dignity, that are inspiring, that are motivating, that give people a sense of purpose and put food on the table. And I want that desperately for creators, because I want better stuff. And and also, the last thing, I get especially motivated because I think it means a path for people that doesn't require those traditional gatekeepers. That also means a lot of the communities, disproportionately communities of color, will finally get what they're due, because this next generation of creators won't need gatekeepers to Get them on a record label or give them a platform. They can just create. They can just build, and and the impact that will have on generations will be significant. And um, so that's why, and that's probably why I keep coming back to the wealth creation part. I, 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 and I'm, you know, I know that is not the end all, and that's probably anathema to what a lot of creators feel in their bones, which is it's not about money. It's it's about creating, and I get that, and I respect that. I I also know. The way this whole second renaissance actually ha- like really happens and lives up to its full potential is if it provides enough for people to take care of themselves, to take care of their families, to, build, to start building generational wealth, especially in communities where historically there's been a ton of great culture creation, but very little revenue generation as a result of it. And that's, that's what we got to change.
1: Heck yeah. Love it. Thank you, Alexis. This was awesome. Thank you for Thanks, taking Jack. the time.
0: Dude, Any, any, anything for you, especially because I'm going to be the first guest. Is that right? We're going to be number one? Okay, great.
1: Ah, Alexis is good people. One of the best dudes I know. I feel super fortunate to have him as an investor in Patreon and as a friend. To find out more about what Alexis is up to, please follow him on Twitter, at Alexis Ohanian. This was the first episode of the Creator Economy podcast, but we have a lot more coming. We got amazing interviews with the incredible Legion, who sort of helped jumpstart this whole thing. We got Signal Fires, Josh Constein, and Joe Albanese, CEO and founder at Stir. Don't forget to subscribe if you want to keep up to date with new episodes as they come out. And of course, please leave a review if you feel so inclined and enjoyed listening. If you have any questions or thoughts about what we discussed, feel free to get in touch via Podcast.com. We are actively recruiting the best and brightest product designers and engineers at Patreon. If you're interested in coming out and helping us build this whole thing and make it come true, please head to our website for more details, patreon.com slash careers. Huge thanks to our producers, Joe Smith and Dave King and the rest of the production team. I'm Jack Conti and this is the Crater Economy Podcast. See you next week.